0: struck at the soiree last night. How many people read off their phones, actually? I can barely see my phone. Never mind, read the text on it. So I'm stuck with um, old-fashioned paper. So Andy's just uh, given a good summary of what we're trying to do in the series. And uh, I wasn't here for Justin. But in the first session that I took, I outlined the distinctive features of the Anabaptist vision of Christian life. Uh, sometimes it's quite simply summarized in three statements which are Christ is the centre of our faith, community is the centre of our life, and peace is the centre of our work or our mission. And what I suggested on the first uh, session was that, for me, it's it's these three things as a unified package that makes the tradition distinctive. Individually, they're all common property of all Christian um, denominations or, or perspectives. But to hold them together as being sort of almost three three legs of a stool is actually quite rare and even rarer to see them as the essence or the meaning of discipleship. I also suggested that the 16th century Anabaptist uh, Reformation could could be understood as a kind of protest movement against coercive or imperial Christianity, the sort of Christianity that existed in the day and stemmed right back to the conversion of Emperor Constantine, in the fourth century. So Anabaptism or or that sort of radical wing of the 16th century Reformation was a protest against uh, Constantinianism or the Constantinian synthesis uh, or Christendom. Now those are three very long words that aren't used very much by people uh, in the Christian community today but they've become um, increasingly used by more radical Christian thinkers today partly as a way of explaining some of the compromises of church history, which we're all aware of and sometimes shamed by, and partly as a way of helping us understand the contemporary space that the church occupies in secular society. So what I want to do tonight is to talk about the emergence of Christendom or Constantinianism, if you want to use a multi-syllabic word for it, uh, and what prevailed before this uh, development occurred and why it is so problematic for understanding uh, the true vocation of the church in the world so this is a bit of a is a bit of a history lesson tonight but hopefully the relevance of some of these observations will be obvious for the first 300 years or so of the movement after jesus the jesus movement christianity was really a dissident religious movement it enjoyed no official recognition or political, or social power. Uh, It sometimes experienced periods of intense persecution, although it wasn't constant, but there were periods of intense persecution, uh, sometimes initiated by the ruling authorities. Think of uh, Nero's um, persecution, which took the life of Paul probably in the 60s, or Domitian towards the end of the first century, and there were other periods in the following centuries where uh, the empire launched the persecution. Uh, Often it was just general uh, outraged by the populace, a kind of almost pogrom, a sort of a, a use of Christians as scapegoats for popular resentment. But despite its marginal status, the early church grew very rapidly. Uh, I read uh, just last week actually a, a review of a book which estimates that in the year 40, so that's you know five, six, seven, eight years after the time of Jesus, before Paul even got really underway as a missionary there were probably only about a 1,000 Christians uh, in the world. By the beginning of the 4th century, it's estimated that 10% of the imperial population belonged to the church, which would have been around about 5 to 6 million people, which means that during the previous 250 years, the church grew at around about 40% per decade, despite persecution, despite scorn, despite substantial disincentives. There were not a lot of good reasons to become a Christian if you're wanting social advancement or comfort. Yet despite all that, the church grew very rapidly. And historians are not just Christian historians, but ancient historians generally have recently been asking the question, well, why? Why did the post-apostolic church, the period between the close of the New Testament uh, and the conversion of Constantine, why did it grow so rapidly? What was the key to its success? and the experts come up with different answers. But what we do know is that it was not because of public evangelistic campaigns. They simply did not happen. There was no 2nd or 3rd century Billy Graham. From around about the mid-60s onwards, the church was largely prescribed as a superstition, and public witness was a very dangerous option. The closest thing that Christians came to public testimony was when individuals were martyred, and had the opportunity to declare their faith before they were executed. But there were no decades of evangelism, there were no open-air campaigns. Uh, I've I've heard this statement, I've never managed to uh, or tried to confirm it, but I've heard it said that Paul was the last well-known or named Christian evangelist that we have from the beginning of the church through to Constantine. So it wasn't because of evangelism, nor was it because the Christians cultivated seeker-sensitive worship services. From the 2nd century onwards, non-Christians were actually barred from Christian assemblies. Christian worship was designed to enable Christians to worship God. It was not designed to attract non-believers. So it appears that the key to the church's galloping growth in these early centuries was actually the attractiveness of its lifestyle. People were drawn to the Christian movement rather than the Christian movement actively trying to recruit people. People were drawn to it like a magnet. And they're probably attracted uh, to three particular things um, about this early movement. Some were drawn intellectually to the beliefs of the early Christians, especially to their belief that Christ had conquered death and that believers no longer needed to fear death. That was enormously attractive to the people. Of the time. Secondly, many would have been attracted by the presence of divine power amongst these early Christian communities, their practice of healing, their practice of exorcism, their vibrant, joyful worship. People in antiquity felt oppressed by predatory spiritual powers. Just read the Epistle to the Ephesians to get a sense of how much for the ancients the idea of living in this malevolent cosmos. Um, had a bearing on them. And Ephesians is all about the way Christ has conquered these predatory powers. Uh, So when people eventually became Christians, part of the practice, as I'll explain in a moment, was renouncing Satan and undergoing exorcism, a central part of the initiation rites for most early Christian communities. And it was a source of radical freedom for people who were uh, crippled by superstition and spiritual oppression. But thirdly, many were also drawn to these Christian assemblies by their ethical behaviour, by the awareness that Christian conversion actually made you a better person. These Christian communities created better people. They were known especially for their hospitality to travellers and for their care for the poor and disadvantaged. Uh, New converts who joined these communities uh, we're not instructed in how to share their faith verbally with their neighbours. I mean, those of us raised in the evangelical tradition, this was, I can remember as a child being trained to go door to door, knocking on the door and sharing the gospel. If you look for the early centuries, there are no uh, manuals of how to evangelise your neighbours. The four spiritual laws are how many there I can remember how many there are, but the, the, there's no equivalent to that. But they were actually instructed in how to do good works how to show mercy, how to deal with anger, how to develop wholesome household relationships. So there's a story told of the conversion of one Pecomius in 4th century Egypt. He learned that Christians were bringing food, drink and other necessities to prisoners in a local military jail. He asked who these Christians were that they should be doing this and he was told they are merciful to everyone, including strangers. They are people who bear the name of Christ, the only begotten son of God. Clearly, this is a Christian tradition that's being told here. Uh, for they do good to everyone, putting their hope in him who made the heaven and the earth and us humans. Well, the second century letter of Diognetus makes similar claims about these early Christian communities. And this is just, I've just picked out a few sentences here, left quite a bit out. But uh, it will give you the flavor of, of the way the early apologists, those who did try to explain the faith to the pagan world, the sorts of things they pointed to in their own communities. They said, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. They follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life. At the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship in heaven. They share their food But not their wives. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They obey the established laws, but in their private lives they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are poor, but they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they are bound in everything. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. Such is the important position to which God has appointed them. So you get the flavor of these early communities being really marked by this distinctive lifestyle and belief system that acted as a magnet to the pagan world, uh, rather than these Christians going out and actively recruiting. In the early centuries, becoming a Christian, to use our language, uh, was a journey that passed through several different stages, uh, initially three and later four The first stage we could call the stage of evangelization. So that was the informal contact that Christians and their non-believing neighbors or or clients, traders and so on had. If somebody was drawn to Christianity because of what he or she saw, uh, they would approach the church leaders with a Christian sponsor to apply for instruction. They were not welcomed with open arms. This sounds more like the exclusive brethren than anything. They were subjected to rigorous scrutiny about their lifestyle and their occupation, such as their involvement in idolatry or astrology or extreme wealth or bloodshed or sexual looseness. And if such behaviours existed in them, they might be sent away. No, you're not ready to join us. Go and sort your life out first. Put these things right and then come back and we'll consider whether you can be part of us. I think that shows just how intent the early Christians were on nurturing communities of value and action that were really different to surrounding society. The second stage was the catechumenate. I'll get there. It was catechesis is the Greek word for teaching. So for several times a week, the applicant would receive intensive instruction in Christian belief, focused primarily on reshaping their behavior It could last for between three to five years. So converts were taught uh, the biblical narratives that covered the sort of broad sweep of biblical history, the sort of stuff we did last year, you know, the large story. They were given key symbolic images that captured this sense of being an exilic community, of being a community that didn't quite fit in mainstream society. Apparently one favorite one was the story of the three men in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. And they were taught the teachings of Jesus because here was the teaching that would show them the kind of lifestyle they were expected to embrace if they became part of this community. They were also given practical teaching on how to help the poor, how to confess their faith under interrogation, how to reply to persecution in a spirit of gentleness. And then, if they persevered through all that, came the time of, it sounds a bit weird to us, but the third stage of enlightenment, which focused on receiving orthodox belief of undergoing exorcism, of learning the Lord's Prayer and other spiritual disciplines, and culminating at Easter in baptism, at which point they belonged to the Christian community. The early believers were baptized naked, which symbolized that they were stripping off all worldly loyalties in order to belong to this new community. They renounced Satan, which was a renunciation of pagan lifestyle, and they were immersed three times. So you would have felt very different before and after, I think. Then they received the Eucharist, and they participated in common prayers and the kiss of peace. So the point is that in this, this early pre-Constantinian period, Christian conversion was a really drawn-out process a process of training and transformation that culminated in baptism. Now, if you're sort of keeping up with this, you might think, well, that's not what we see in the New Testament. And it's not, because in the New Testament, you know, as many as, be- as believe, we're baptized. It's almost a reversal of the New Testament pattern, which is interesting. And one of the explanations for that was, well, maybe they found that if you are going to really transform people's lifestyles so that they live as followers of Jesus, it takes work and you need to invest in that work before you actually uh, recognize them as part of the community. But the key point, and I'm not suggesting this early practice is necessarily a model for thereafter, it's, it's, it's more what drives it, which I think is significant. The key point is that Christian identity was understood as something that required a fundamental reshaping of pagan, moral, and spiritual values, and lifestyles, and that focused on the centrality and the teaching of Jesus as the way in which we are called to live. Now, one significant part of this countercultural identity was the commitment to nonviolence. And I want to speak a little bit more about this because this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, and um, we'll no doubt come back to it later in the series. Was the early church at this period a pacifist community or not? Well, the evidence is ambiguous, and it's certainly controverted. But it appears that the early church was a predominantly, if not exclusively, pacifist community. The most frequently cited biblical text in the early Christian writings, the one that they go back to more and more often, over and over again, and more than any other text, is the text from Isaiah 2, which is also found in Micah 4, they're almost verbatim, this uh, prophecy. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So that was a text they felt that their experience was the fulfilment of, that this text explained what they believed that they were uh, experiencing and representing. There is no evidence, no archaeological evidence we have or, or or literature evidence we have of Christians in the Roman military for the first hundred and thirty years of the church's existence. Uh, the Christian apologist Justin Martyr wrote in the year 160 So this is about 100 years after um, Paul's uh, uh, execution, so really early into the church's experience. Justin wrote, We ourselves were well conversant with war, murder, and everything evil, but all of us throughout the whole earth have traded in our weapons of war. We have exchanged our swords for plowshares, our spears for farm tools. Now we cultivate the fear of God, justice, kindness to men, faith, and the expectation of the future given to us by the Father himself through the crucified one. Another early Christian apologist, Athenagoras, asked, uh, and this statement has enormous relevance, I think, to the religious right in America at the moment, the Christian right in the U.S. He asked, how can we possibly kill anyone we who call those women murderers who take drugs to induce an abortion. We who say that they will have to give an account to God for that one day. Uh, you may know that in the U.S. there was a movement called Consistently Pro-Life, which was really aimed at the religious right. who said, if you object so strongly to abortion, why don't you object to capital punishment and why don't you object to war as well if you're really pro-life? Be consistently pro-life. Well, they were beaten to it by... Athenagoras back in the second century there's another father I didn't have time to track down the origins of this but I was struck just reading a book recently where he called the church God's bloodless army an army for sure but an army that doesn't shed blood in fact the pagan critic of early Christianity, Celsus criticised Christianity on the grounds that if everyone became a Christian the empire would be left defenseless, so that's a measure of the extent to which Christians were identified with those who refused to kill The first hard evidence of Christians in the Roman army comes from the year 174 AD. So clearly some Christians did join the army, though their numbers were probably not great. Uh, Probably not because the Roman army was a largely all-volunteer force, conscription was uncommon, and it recruited largely from the rank and file of people in rural areas. And the officer corps was restricted to Roman citizens. Christianity, however, was a largely urban movement, and few possessed citizenship, so it was relatively easy for Christians to avoid the problem of having to join the army, which is probably one of the reasons why the early fathers don't talk about it very much. Uh, Militarism was not a burning issue for them. Uh, And no doubt, because, you know, like two Jews, three views, well, same you could say with Christians, there's always going to be diversity on everything, and no doubt there was a variety of views in the Christian population and in different parts of the empire. However... All the early church fathers who speak directly about Christian participation in the military profession or in violence, all who speak about it, uniformly oppose it. And scholars debate the reasons for this opposition. But it seems the general perspective would be something like this. On principle, Christians should not join the army or participate in violence of any kind because that is incompatible with following Jesus. That is inconsistent with the example that Jesus set. If a serving soldier becomes a Christian, and that presumably did happen, although it wouldn't have been all that common, the new convert doesn't need to resign immediately. Uh, that option wasn't open because uh, enlistment was normally for 20 years and desertion was a capital offence. So it's not like you go, okay, I've changed my mind, I'm going to leave or become a Christian. Uh, you can stay in the army, but as a Christian soldier, you must avoid compromising your new faith, even if it costs you your life. And the compromises would include participating in idolatry, such as worship of the emperor, which was one of the real distinctive dividing lines for the early Christian movement, refused to participate in the imperial cult, or swearing idolatrous oaths, which was required of officers, or involvement in sexual immorality or in the circuses or in any other wanton excesses, and especially in the taking of human life, the shedding of human blood. So it was possible to be a soldier and not killed because the army fulfilled lots of other functions beside waging war. It was the fire brigade and it was the police force and it was the postal service and it was a civil administration and so on. But for those who were Christians, for those who had embraced this way of life, the early fathers felt that the place at least they draw the line as well as idolatry was on the shedding of blood. So Hippolytus of Rome in the late second century stated this. A soldier of the civil authority must be taught not to kill men and refuse to do so if he is commanded and refuse to take an oath. If he's unwilling to comply, he must be rejected for baptism. A military commander or civic magistrate must resign or be rejected. If a believer seeks to become a soldier, he must be rejected for he has despised God. Or well, perhaps the most famous Peace theologian of the early years, Tertullian, said it is more permissible to be killed than to kill. So there was a general resistance by the early Christian leaders, the church fathers as we know them, towards Christian involvement in military life and especially its lethal activities. They were generally positive about the Roman Empire and they were committed to the welfare of the empire, but they stressed the loyalty of Christians to Christ above their loyalty to society. They saw military violence as incompatible with the law of Christ, which is love, peace, mercy, forgiveness, and gentleness. Some, like Tertullian, were radical pacifists. They utterly rejected all participation in political and military institutions. Tertullian famously said, you may have heard the statement, that when Jesus took away Peter's sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, he thereby disarmed every Christian soldier thereafter, He asked, will a son of peace who should not even go to court take part in battle? Will a man who does not avenge wrongs done to himself have any part in chains, prisons, tortures and punishments? Others, like Oregon, were more sort of dualistic pacifists. They thought it was legitimate for the government to wage war and even for Christians to pray for victory on the part of the government, but not to engage personally in the bloodshed. They argued that the church's role was to wage spiritual warfare and the emperor's role was to wage physical warfare. So there was obviously diversity of views, but I suspect that most of the early Christian writers, if we could get them into the room and ask them, would probably agree with the 20th century Christian pacifist leader, A.J. Musty, who said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. And he also said, wars will end when men refused to fight. So I think what I'm suggesting then is in these early centuries, what marked the church, at least in terms of the way the leaders of the church sort of talked about it and managed it, was a sense of radical distinction to mainstream pagan society. And it included a, a descent from the violence of mainstream society, a community that saw itself as the fulfillment of this prophecy that the time would come when the word of the Lord went forth from Zion, when people would beat their weapons into into instruments of, of peace. But things changed when the Roman Emperor Constantine embraced Christianity, which he did following a vision he had on the eve of a battle in the year 312. He had a vision, I can't remember the actual details, but he saw... Um, He saw banners with a cross on it and the words in the sign you shall conquer and he took this as as an instruction that he needed to embrace the Christian God. His conversion marked the birth of imperial Christianity or what is often called Christendom and as I said in the first week Christendom for me is not the same as Christianity. Christendom refers to that synthesis of church state and culture. So they are three sides of the same social reality, which began at the time of Constantine and really prevailed through until just our generation, when I think the last vestiges of it are beginning to disappear. It's not to suggest that when Constantine embraced Christianity, things suddenly changed like that. There was a kind of before and after. Uh, History doesn't work that way. The church had been subjected to a gradual assimilation to imperial values for generations, the radical ethos of the New Testament had become increasingly limited to monks and clerics and ascetics. They were the ones who did the really hardcore stuff uh, rather than it being expected of everybody. And then on the other hand, once Constantine did embrace or legalize Christianity, it took more than a 100 years before um, the, the kind of uh, mainstreaming of Christianity was complete with the final closing down of pagan shrines and the forcible suppression of heretics. Also, just by way of qualification, not everything that happened after Constantine was bad. I mean, there's lots of good things that have come from Christianity becoming kind of mainstream in Western culture. Uh, In fact, most mainstream church historians are very positive about what happened after the conversion of Constantine. Uh, They see Constantine's conversion as a kind of coming of age for the church, that prior to Constantine, when the church was this sort of marginal community, Uh, It was guilty of sort of sectarian withdrawal from the world, that its pacifism, its nonviolence is a luxury that only those who don't have responsibility to run the world uh, or to administer justice or to make hard decisions, only they can afford the luxury of keeping their hands clean. After Constantine, the church began to shoulder responsibility for shaping society and restraining social evil, and that sometimes requires, in fact, it often seems to re- require the use of just violence. So that's the kind of dominant view, I guess, that has prevailed through uh, sort of mainstream church history and through the mainstream traditions. And, you know, that's worth, that's worth us thinking about and talking about. It really depends on how you view the role of the church uh, in the world to know what to make of that. Uh, It's it's also interesting to note that Constantine's own personal conversion was a rather gradual and incomplete process. Uh, After his vision in 312, he legalised Christianity, and he decided to use Christianity to unify the empire, which was still locked into a civil war for the next decade or more. But although he embraced the Christian God... After all, he was the emperor. He refused to be baptized or to undergo the humiliation of catechesis, of actually having other people tell him how he should behave or what he should believe. And so he was not permitted to attend church services. He was not permitted to take the Eucharist. And his behavior didn't change that much either. He still waged war. And in 325, what's that, 13 years after his alleged conversion, he executed his own wife and son were still over 600 offences that carried the death penalty in the Roman Empire. It was only in 337, what's that, 25 years after his vision, on the eve of his death, fearing imminent death, he finally agreed to be baptised. And apparently he underwent quite a powerful religious experience and thereafter refused to wear imperial purple. So His own personal story wasn't necessarily one of a Billy Graham awakening either. Uh, It was much more of a a political strategy which maybe eventually began to affect him personally. Constantine himself didn't employ religious coercion, but by the end of the 4th century it was being employed to stamp out heresy, uh, to suppress paganism. And in fact by the end of the 4th century only card-carrying Christians could be hired by the civil service Or join the army. Uh, Christian pacifism did continue but it was confined to clerics and monks and in its place emerged the just war theory which was developed to show how involvement in warfare could be seen as compatible with Christian discipleship. So then Christendom is this fusion of Christian religion, politics and culture that began with Constantine in the 4th century and prevailed for 1,500 years, up until quite recently. Cracks began forming in the 16th century Reformation, with the 16th century Reformation, followed by the 17th century Wars of Religion, uh, the 18th century Enlightenment, the 19th century Scientific Revolution, and the 20th century Decolonisation Movement, which have all undermined this kind of Western Christian um, unity that Christendom represented. And at an institutional level, I think Western Christendom has largely unraveled. And we are now entering or living in the post-Christendom age. But Constantinian assumptions still affect the way many people think about Christian faith. Uh, both inside the church and outside the church. Now, I've got a list of examples here which I'm not going to give you because you might like to come up with them yourself, but I'll just give you two that quickly come to mind, uh, very recent. Uh, I was preaching this morning at a church, uh, an Anglican church, and afterwards when I was talking to one of the women who would probably be 10 years older than me maybe, um, she said, one thing I really can't understand is why Christian leaders don't get up in arms about the fact that Easter Sunday trading is now allowed. This is the most important religious festival we have why do they just accept that um, Easter trading should be allowed right and I tried to say to well it's our most important day of the year but it's not most people's most important day of the year and should we really coerce other people into observing our day of the year so in a sense you're still working with a kind of constantinian assumption or another example I was reading in the listener this week there's an article about Lloyd Gehring. now do you know the name Lloyd Gehring? some of you will uh, the older people will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't? No, but, to, Lloyd, Lloyd, Lloyd Gehry is 99 years old, so he was my professor of religious studies when I was a student at Vic. Very. He's a very notorious character in New Zealand. He was, he was almost put on trial for heresy by the Presbyterian Church. He's not notorious. Pardon? He's not notorious. Isn't he? Well, he's uh, been made of... Oh, he's been made He's one of the 20 New Zealanders who... Anyway, he's notorious at certain parts of the church. <laughs> but um, he's a classic 19th century liberal, right? And one of the things he said in this article was he said, today the word Christian largely means evangelical, charismatic or Pentecostal. But he said that's not, how it usually, that's not how it usually meant. I mean, what it should mean is people to accept certain values, right? So what he was saying is that the sort of evangelical wing of the church, which sort of has this strong sense of you've got to become a Christian, They've commandeered this common idea that you're a Christian if you embrace certain Western values, right? Good Western values, uh, which is a Christendom way of thinking about what Christianity is, in my view. It's an assumption that Christianity can be identified with the best of Western civilization. And there are lots of other examples you know, that I could give that I think are the, are the kind of um, the vestiges of Christendom that, that people, we still have. Uh, You know, God Defend New Zealand could be another example of it, which I sang at graduation the other night. Uh, Flags in churches, um, parliament opening with prayer. There are lots of places where just the hangovers of this idea that we are a Christian country, Christianity is our religion, and all our public institutions and public uh, life ought to reflect that. I think that's just the vestiges of imperial Christianity, which really is largely over. Uh, And that's why... Talking about this early stuff is so relevant for us because we are living in a situation that arguably is far more like the first 300 years than it was the following 1500 years. Uh, so, uh, just very quickly, I'm sorry about endurance when you said that, I thought you don't know what's coming tonight. Um, <laughs> Constantinian Christianity is really characterised by four kinds of commonality. Perhaps I'll just mention one of them. The four things is there is a common story that unites church and, and, and state. There's, one um, things I want to talk about the first one only because time's going. There's a, there's a common belonging. You know, you, you're a Christian because you're born into a geographical territory that just happens to be Western, and therefore you're a Christian. Uh, there's a common belief, which is largely orthodox, Christian theology um, and it's imposed in a very rigid way and there's a kind of common behaviour, you know, the Lloyd-Gearing idea, just as long as you're a good decent kind of western person then you're a Christian so the, the Christendom is, is this idea that we all kind of share this common sort of uh, moral and spiritual and geographical and political space just, just um, uh, by virtue of, of where we happen to be born but perhaps the, the one thing I would just expand on a little bit is this idea of In a Christendom society, there is a sort of common story that everybody buys into. So in Christendom, church and country share the same story. They're two sides of the same reality. Now this is in marked contrast to what we find in the New Testament. Because the New Testament draws the sharp distinction between church and world. Between this age and the age to come. Uh, Between flesh and spirit, there's very dualistic language in the New Testament. Let's just stick with the church and world idea. There's a sharp distinction between church and world, church and wider life. Now, ultimately, in the New Testament's perspective, God is in control of all of life. Christ is Lord of all. The risen Christ is in charge or uh, the rightful king of all that exists. But this distinction between church and world is still critically important. And here's a way of thinking about it which I find really helpful. In the New Testament distinction between church and world, the church is understood as the place where God's rule is most visible. Where God's rule is most visible. In a community of disciples who willingly submit to Christ's lordship, who strive to conform their lives to the teaching and example and spirit of Jesus. The world is the place where God's rule is largely invisible. Now, we know that God is in control, ultimately, and we know that he will ultimately reconcile all things to himself and all things will cohere in Christ. We know that, but we can't discern how and where God is at work in historical events, which more often appear to be the realm of unmitigated evil rather than some divine hand at work causing things to happen uh, to some predetermined plan. The place where we are invited to see the true character of God's rule, God's rule made visible, is in the community of faith, where Christ's teachings are honoured where Christ's spirit is active, and where the story of Jesus is told and retold. And from that place, that sphere, the sphere of the church, we learn that God's rule is one characterized by love, by peace, by gentleness, by equality, by mercy, by truth, by justice, by compassion, by service, and so on. When we look at the world we see a very different story at work. Even though we believe in some mysterious way, God is at work there too, achieving his ultimate goals, although we barely see a glimpse of it. Uh, you know, Maybe the image of God playing chess and sort of constantly responding to moves is one way of understanding it. But it's, it's really hard to read God's involvement in Donald Trump for example, or God's involvement in Syria, or God's involvement in North Korea nuclear tests. I mean, anybody who claims to be able to read what God is doing in face of that, I I think, is is, um, overly optimistic. Uh, That's not where we see God's rule made visible. We see God's rule made visible in the church. Now, ultimately, because of the nature of our faith, we believe that the story of the church and the story of the world will converge, and Christ will be lord of all. But at the present time, the church treasures a very distinct story or version of the story, even though we believe ultimately it will be the world's story too. But ultimately it's a story in the in the meantime at least it's a story that looks radically different from the story of power politics and military conquest and the and the domination of the strong and the injury of the weak. After Constantine, things switched over. After Constantine, now history and power politics were viewed as the arena where God's will is made visible, where God's rule is made visible. Military and political power were accepted as the major way that God achieves his rule on earth, even to the extent of forcing conversions, repressing heresy, going on crusades, waging war, and so on. This was how God's will, I mean, this is... Islamic militantism today this is how God's will is achieved and this idea that God is somehow using raw military and political power in order to advance his kingdom this fundamental Christendom idea is still with us, so I read in a book some years ago that Vice President Dick Cheney maybe not the Antichrist but getting (laughs) Cheney sent Christmas cards to his supporters in the year 2003, in which he quoted Benjamin Franklin as saying, If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? You can see what the subtext is there. American might is divinely intended, this powerful Enormously powerful reality is something that God is behind and God is using. So in a Christendom mindset, church and state share the same story. There's a symbiotic relationship between them. The state is the political face of the church, protecting its its interests, defending its monopoly, enforcing its beliefs. And the church is the spiritual soul of the nation the conscience of society, the Tory party at prayer, and so on. It provides the religious rituals, the symbols and institutions that give civilization its coherence, that glue it all together, that grant divine legitimacy to those in power. The church is no longer, in a Christendom, my world, a source of prophetic critique and radical change because the church is run by people with a radical investment in the existing social system. And it's at this time, and I'll finish with this, it's at this time that the notion of the church invisible emerges. I mentioned this in the first week, uh, this idea that uh, when you look at a Christendom church, is made up of lots of nominal, uncommitted people and a few really godly people, but they're all part of the church, and people think, this, is, this doesn't make sense. Oh, there's a difference. is the visible church and the invisible church. The invisible church is the true People of God that are known only to God and will eventually be saved. And the visible church is all the other, you know, wheat and tears kind of scenario. And so John Howard Yoder makes this comment about this. He says, in summary, before you knew as a fact of experience that there was a church and you had to take it on faith that God was governing history. Now, you know for a fact that God is governing history. After all, Constantine is one of us. But you have to take it on faith that there actually is a church. And so there is a shift in meaning of salvation history for which Constantine is the symbol. So time is gone, but I will finish with this one little quote of, um, which I've always has amused me. What, what I guess behind this, uh, this talk, the, the idea behind it, is is that Anabaptism or the believer's church tradition in general uh, is best seen, I think, as a renewal movement that strives to return the church to its true vocation in the world. And its true vocation is not as the religious face of imperial power. The vocation of the church is not to be the spiritual face of political and military and imperial power. The role of the church is to be a dissident community of love, conformed to the image of Christ with its own distinctive story, its own beliefs, its own terms of belonging, its own norms of behavior, and marked supremely by the sacrificial service and nonviolence that we see Jesus embodying and teaching. And that's why I think the tradition is so valuable for us in this post-Christendom environment. Stanley Halwas, uh is one of the leading theologians of our generation. He's recently retired. Um... He tells the story of how he discovered the writings of John Howard Yoder. So, uh, Yoder is perhaps the most famous Mennonite theologian—a very, 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 very flawed man—and uh, his flaws have emerged even more dramatically uh, after his death. And at the time, it turns out he is responsible for numerous cases of sexual harassment and assault. Uh, you know, a, a, a Christian ethicist whose own ethics. Um, didn't match up to his message, but nonetheless a very important Anabaptist thinker. And Howell was uh, came across the the writings of this guy and he read as much as he could and he met personally with Howell was, uh, with Yoda, um, who was based at uh, Elkhart, which is about 30 30 miles from South Bend where Notre Dame University is where Howell was taught. And he decided to write a paper on Yoda for a conference at a Lutheran university. Okay, here's how was. he's discovered Anabaptism, embodied in the writings of John Howard Yoder, and he's going to a conference at a Lutheran university to give a paper on what he's discovered. And he said this, I introduced my remarks by saying that here I was, a Methodist of doubtful theological background, Methodists by definition have doubtful theological backgrounds, representing a Catholic department of theology, speaking to a bunch of Lutherans, to say that the Mennonites had been right all along. I suggest that this would be an ecumenical effort, since I thought by presenting the work of John Howard Yoder to Catholics and Lutherans, I would help them see that they had much in common, namely that Catholics and Lutherans have always assumed that it was a good thing to kill Anabaptists. Of course, that was what happened when Catholics and Lutherans competed to show why under certain circumstances it is a good thing to kill. And so he, you know, he, he's a pacifist theologian and he wanted to challenge that Christendom assumption. <laughs>